You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. The idea for our new series came to me a couple of years ago after I interviewed a modern-day travel writer and explorer, Alice Morrison. I asked Alice about her own inspirations, and one of the names that popped up was Freya Stark. Stark was a prolific explorer and writer in the 20th century, penning more than two dozen books on her travels through the Middle East. She was one of the first non-Arabs to travel through the Southern Arabian Desert in modern times. Stark's journey to the fabled Valley of the Assassins, and her search for one of the lost fortresses of the mysterious Order of the Assassins, is one of the great adventure stories of the era. These are wonderful tales where we see how this diminutive young woman developed into one of the great travelers of the day, all by using her wits and charm, nary a gun in sight, except for those used by bandits and colonial officials. I asked Alice Morrison what was so interesting about Freya Stark, and she said this, quote, I first read Freya Stark in my impressionable twenties, and I devoured her adventures across Arabia and the Levant. She brought these worlds to life for me, and now I am doing my own explorations, and I still use her as my lodestone for what an adventurer should be. End quote. I love that the writings of Freya Stark continue to inspire people such as Alice Morrison nearly 100 years later. The enthusiasm that Alice has for Freya Stark is what made me want to do a series on the woman. And well, the time is now. By the way, if you want to listen to my interview with Alice Morrison, look in the show notes or on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I put a link to the interview as well as a link to other information about her. Anyhow, here is how we are going to lay out this series. In this episode, we will cover the early years of Stark's life, including her near death as a youth. We'll follow her experiences as a nurse in World War I and then her post-war life and her steps towards going off and adventuring in the Middle East. We will end today's episode with Stark's first journey into an area called Jabal al-Druze, a region dominated by the fierce and secretive Druze, not to mention completely off-limits according to the French colonial government. Next time, we will get Stark going on her search for the Valley of the Assassins. More will follow that. As a note, you don't really need a map for today's story. If you find Damascus on a map, where we are going is just to the southeast of it. The specifics are not super important. Okay, let us get started with the story of explorer Freya Stark. Freya Madeleine Stark was born on July 31, 1893 in Paris, where her parents studied art. Her mother Flora was of English, French, German, and Polish descent. Her father Robert was a painter from Devon, England. They were first cousins, but they did not meet until Flora was 18 and Robert 26. There were family ties in northern Italy, where Flora had grown up, as well as England. Robert and Flora Stark's marriage was not a happy one. While both were artists, Robert was slight and loved nature and wanted quiet and solitude. Flora, however, was described as a force of nature. She was tall and domineering and loved parties and people in high society. Also, Robert controlled the purse strings in the family, and Flora resented his stinginess. 
the couple would suffer through the births and deaths of two children in infancy before Freya was born in 1893, after they had been married for 13 years. Another child, Vera, was born the following year. A side note here. There is a story that Freya's father was not Robert Stark, but Obadiah Dyer, who was from a prominent New Orleans family. If this story is true, we don't really know. But to be honest, the truth really doesn't affect things. Robert seems to have treated Freya as his daughter, and no matter the truth, I don't think it would really affect our narrative. Side note done. The family moved frequently when the girls were young. Paris, Northern Italy, Genoa, England, Italy again, and then back to England. Robert fell into a life of landed gentry, and he needed to be in England to manage his projects. Florida hated the isolation of Devon. Freya was a small girl and then topped out at 5 foot 1, or 155 centimeters. She was also smart and precocious. When she was 9 years old, she was given a copy of the Arabian Nights, and she was enchanted by the stories of the exotic Far East. Her father, Robert, taught his girls to appreciate nature. They learned to identify vegetation, insects, and animals. He challenged and bribed them to tackle difficult things so they wouldn't be afraid of uncomfortable situations. Freya's mother, however, was unhappy. She had given up life as a painter and saw her husband as dull and ordinary, not to mention tight-fisted. In 1903, Freya's mother went to Gernero, Italy, where she met Count Mario di Roascio, a man 19 years her junior. Gernero is a small town in the northwest of Italy, just 20 miles or 32 kilometers from the French border. The Count was trying to raise money to buy a factory and turn it into a large rug and basket operation. Well, you can probably figure out where things are going from here. Flora eventually went to Italy, supposedly on holiday, and sent for her two daughters. They did not come back. Flora invested 1,600 pounds, all the money that they had, in the Count's factory. The move for Freya and Vera to Dronero was devastating. The children were mostly ignored by their mother, who was engrossed in getting the factory up and running, and money quickly ran low. Freya's father was outraged by it all and refused to provide any more funds, even when things got difficult. He stayed put in England. Meanwhile, the Stark women were ostracized by the community. Flora and Mario's relationship, while never acknowledged, was likely sexual in nature. This was wildly inappropriate in heavily Catholic Italy, and even family friends disapproved. Money was so short, there were times where the Starks had no heat in their home in the winter, and the children put in long hours at the factory as well as keeping the house clean. One respite would be visits from a family friend, Herbert Young, who would come from his home in Oslo, not far from Venice. Young brought presents for the girls, including books, which Freya devoured. Freya, by the way, had learned Italian and French, and in time, German. The family would struggle to get by in these first few years in Italy, and the Count was showing no interest in repaying the money that he owed Flora. And then in 1905, tragedy would strike, nearly killing young Freya Stark when she was just shy of 13 years old. Freya, her mother and sister, had gone to the factory to check out some of the new machinery that had just been installed. Now, Freya had long chestnut hair almost to her waist, and you can probably guess what's going to happen next. A gust of wind blew through the factory and Freya's hair, which she was wearing loose, got caught in the machinery. It only lasted seconds, but what followed altered Freya's life. The machine pulled her into its grip, threatening to crush her head. Mario reacted quickly and yanked Freya from the machine's hold. There was blood everywhere. Half of Freya's scalp had been ripped off, as well as her right ear. Also, her right eyelid was pulled away permanently, and tissue around the temple was torn away. Freya was taken to a hospital in Turin, where a skin graft was attempted. Her body, however, rejected the graft. 
Remember, this was before antibiotics, so infections could kill a person. Freya was near death. Another doctor decided to do a second skin graft, this time taking skin from Freya's thighs. The operation was done without anesthetic. The procedure was nearly unbearable. The doctor had to slice off a 12-year-old girl's healthy skin with no pain aids, and then graft it onto her skull. As you can imagine, this was a source of long-term trauma. But Freya survived and gradually began to heal. She would spend four months in the hospital recovering. She was scarred emotionally and physically for life. Going forward, Freya Stark would lament her looks, feeling she was never pretty enough. That was a big deal for a young woman who was expected to find a husband and get married. She wore hats and scarves all of her life to cover the scars, or she would pull her hair over her brow and secure it with a ribbon. During her recovery, someone sent Freya a world atlas, which she poured through, dreaming of places to go, anywhere but the lonely world of Gennaro, Italy. The next few years, Freya worked at the factory in Gennaro as a bookkeeper. She desperately wanted to get away to a proper school, and her father agreed to pay for university, but only if it was in England. She would settle on Bedford College in London. I cannot stress to you how huge this was for Freya Stark. To be leaving home was a miracle. Her mother was a world-class manipulator and did her best to keep Freya in Italy. Freya loved and hated her mother in equal parts, but she was rarely able to stand up to the woman. In fact, there is a disturbing bit regarding Flora's friend and business partner, Count Mario di Roascio. When Freya turned 17, the man turned his attention towards her, likely with the idea of marrying Freya. Some have suggested that Freya's mother, Flora, had put him up to it. But there was way too much ick, ick, ick going on here, and Freya was having none of it. She was going to go to London for school. Unfortunately, Freya's sister, Vera, would become the next object of Count Mario's affections. Vera had asked to take sculpture lessons, but neither her mother nor father would agree to that, and she was thus forced to stay in Gennaro. Vera would eventually wed Mario di Roascio, and it would be a sad, sad marriage. Flora ran her daughter's life, even living with the couple. Vera would be overwhelmed by her domineering mother. Around this time, Freya's father, Robert, moved to Canada to become a commercial flower farmer. He left a 2,000-pound gift to each of his children. However, Vera was forced to convert to Catholicism, and by law, Vera's 2,000 pounds became the property of her husband, Mario. As I said, it was a sad situation. By the way, over the years, that 2,000-pound gift would go a long way in Freya's life. Anyhow, Freya would make her way to London in 1911, where she quickly found a new world open to her. She worked hard, doing well in history, literature, Latin, and everything else, with the exception of mathematics, which she despised. But her professors noticed her, and soon she was being invited to tea and social events. Also, she made friends, including one who took her to high society events, where she met celebrities such as W.B. Yeats and H.G. Wells. Also, it was here that she became a student of William Patton Kerr, a celebrated literary scholar and professor of Scandinavian studies at the University of London. The charismatic Professor Kerr could read 15 different languages, and Freya came to worship the man, calling him her honorary godfather. But more importantly, the professor became the father figure that Freya had never really had. He encouraged her intellectual pursuits and saw her potential. Freya would dedicate her first book to the man. Sadly, Freya Stark's life would be upended in 1914, along with so many others, with the outbreak of World War I. Stark returned to Italy, which was an ally of Great Britain's, and trained, over her mother's objections, at a hospital in Bologna as a nurse. It was there that she fell in love with the doctor and became engaged. But the relationship was ultimately sabotaged by Freya's mother, as well as the return of her fiancé's old flame. 
I won't go into the details, but it was pretty much a bad soap opera. The relationship ended breaking Freya's heart. To add to the misery, Vera's first child died in infancy. Also, Freya came down with an illness that kept her bedridden for months. I can't stress how warped and destructive Freya's relationship was with her mother. Freya was by nature a people pleaser, and she desperately wanted the approval of her mother. But her actions were becoming intolerable, even for Freya. Little by little, all of this was picking away at the influence that Flora had on her daughter. Years later, Freya came to understand just how destructive her mother had been on her and her sister. She wrote, quote, No crime short of murder can be comparable to the crime of destroying in another the capacity to love. And this happens sometimes through the rashness of parents or the sight of misery in adolescence, but more often through some bitterness of experience when youth is still defenseless. She would then add, such wounds leave a scar difficult to heal, end quote. Those are horribly sad words to write about one's parent, but it demonstrates the depths of Freya's misery. It was the betrayal by her mother, the selfishness and arrogance, which was so deplorable. As I was writing the script for this episode, I debated how much I wanted to talk about the personal life of Freya Stark. I mean, we don't always go into this much depth with our explorers. Why is she different? Is it because she was a woman? Should I really be talking about failed romances and overbearing mothers? In the end, I said yes to these questions. And the reason why is there are so few explorers in our show that we talk about who are as unlikely as Freya Stark. She has so many reasons not to be an explorer or traveler. She had so many moments that could have sidetracked her. And much of that comes from being a woman from this time and place. I mean, there was probably more of a chance that a commoner named James Cook would become one of the great naval explorers in history than a poor young woman in post-war Europe could go on to find a lost city. And I talk about these things because, without realizing it, they are shaping Freya Stark. She is this small young woman, scarred and fragile-looking, yet she is surviving and learning and growing. It will give her unique skills that will come in quite handy in the coming decades. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Freya Stark headed back to London in August of 1916, while war raged throughout Europe. She took a job in the war censor's office, where she put good use her knowledge of German, Italian, and French. However, by 1917, she was back in Italy working as a nurse on the Italian front. Here she saw the worst of the war. She sat with men as they died, had limbs amputated, and screamed in unbearable pain due to their wounds. She was a tough, compassionate, and competent nurse, although people constantly fretted over this short, frail-looking young woman. No one realized how resilient she had become. The war in Italy was a bloody stalemate for two years, until the Battle of Corporetto in October and November of 1917. The Italian army collapsed and suffered what some describe the worst defeat in Italian military history. Tens of thousands of men would be killed, and nearly 300,000 Italians were taken prisoner by the Austro-Hungarian forces and their German allies. In the aftermath of the battle, the Italians, along with Stark, fled south before a defensive line was established a few miles from Venice. Stark's experience in the war was another transformative experience. She was deeply moved by the tragedy, the bravery, and the sacrifice. Also, it was here that she felt compelled to start writing. Despite working endless hours, she kept a diary of her experiences, which included vivid descriptions of life in a war hospital. Even as the war came to a close, Stark's services as a nurse were in need due to the deadly worldwide influenza outbreak, as well as typhoid, which had swept through Italy. Her writings became an outlet for her, and in time she wrote two short fiction stories. They were the only fiction pieces she would ever write, and they would not be published for another 50 years. In 1919, a 26-year-old Freya Stark returned to Gennaro. She hated the place, but she didn't want to be a nurse for the rest of her life. Her sister had lost another baby and suffered from depression, and her mother was obsessed with her factory, which was losing money. Social unrest rocked Italy, like many nations. Millions of people were dead, millions more were crippled mentally and physically. Unemployment rose and prices skyrocketed. Socialism was on the rise. Violent activism was not uncommon. After all she had been through, Freya knew she had to get away. At this time, she turned to her father, persuading him to buy a commercial flower farm, just like he had, near the town of Ventimiglia on the Ligurian coast, 90 miles from Gennaro. Freya then got her mother to move to a home in La Martola, a few miles away. The idea was to keep Flora close, but not too close. The Ligurian coast is called the Italian Riviera. There are many amazing resorts there, but the Starks did not live in one of those. They were still poor. Freya once even resorted to smuggling a painting into France for a dealer to avoid Italian export taxes. Life on the farm was hard work, and it took away from what Freya really wanted to do, which was to travel and write. Thankfully, friends would come and visit her, including those from London, and her family friends, Herbert and Margaret Oliver, bought a nearby house. They would be great supporters of Freya. Another visitor every year was Professor Kerr, her beloved teacher from London. Like the Olivers, the professor understood how precarious a situation Freya was in, financially, and helped out without making it seem like charity. Freya had become, like her mother, fiercely proud and didn't want to be seen as a charity case. On these visits, Freya often took her friends hiking and climbing in the nearby mountains. It was on one of these excursions, on July 17, 1923, with Professor Kerr, that he would have a heart attack and die. As a tribute to her mentor, Freya climbed the Matterhorn, as well as the 15,000-foot-high, or 4,000-meter, Monte Rosa from the Italian side. This was an immensely dangerous climb. Just that year, three people had died in an avalanche, and only one other woman had ever completed the climb. It would take 12 hours, but Freya Stark became the second. 
The death of Professor Kerr was another devastating blow to Freya. The man had inspired her in so many ways. When she talked about learning Spanish, it was the professor who suggested Icelandic, his specialty. Freya was, after all, named after one of the Norse gods. Why not challenge herself? Freya would accept the challenge, only instead of Icelandic, she chose Arabic. Why Arabic? Well, the Middle East had, for years, been in the news as European nations played the great game as they scrambled to expand their colonial empires. The Middle East had oil, as well as the Suez Canal, which was critical to trade between Asia and Europe. Freya had grown up fascinated by the stories of the East. She had read the tales of Richard Francis Burton as he traveled to Mecca and Medina in disguise, and she loved Kipling as well as the stories of T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia. So Stark's interest in Arabia and the East was not completely out of the blue, and by learning Arabic, she was setting the stage to visit these fascinating lands. By the way, one person Stark doesn't mention as inspiration was Gertrude Bell. Bell was an English writer, traveler, and archaeologist. She had spent much of her life exploring and mapping the Middle East in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I will cover her at some point on this podcast. Many people would go on to compare Stark to Bell, women traveling in the Middle East at a time where female explorers were nearly non-existent. But Stark would later say that Bell's life just wasn't that interesting, and her works had not really influenced her. This was, however, likely a lie. Stark had almost assuredly read Bell's books, and to say that she had not been influenced by the woman is unlikely. In reality, Stark almost seems to have treated Bell as a rival, despite the latter dying in 1926. It was as if acknowledging Bell would diminish her own accomplishments. No matter, Freya began her Arabic studies by arranging lessons with an old retired Capuchin monk. She walked an hour to the train station just to reach the man. People thought she was crazy. Arabic? That was just a silly dream. The challenges of Stark's life were added to by recurring physical pains, possibly brought on by constant stress. These were gastric ulcers. They were so bad she had surgery to help with the problem in 1924. Unfortunately, the incision became infected and sepsis set in. Freya Stark's life was again in danger. Thankfully, Stark understood just how sick she was and insisted on a doctor attending to her. He drained a pint of pus from the incision. Stark went to Asolo in northeast Italy to recuperate with Herbert and Margaret Young. It was beautiful there and she loved the area. There was talk of another operation and in 1925 she was sent to England for another opinion. The doctor there, however, insisted that rest was her best course of action. The good thing to come out of all of this was that Stark continued to study Arabic, including finding a tutor in London. Also, she learned the basics of cartography and how to use a compass. She would begin to ask around about getting a job in the Middle East. Freya would shuttle between London and Italy. However, in September of 1926, there would be another tragedy. Freya's sister, Vera, would have a miscarriage, fall ill, and die. She was 32 years old. She left behind three small children. Freya was deeply affected by her sister's death. Vera had been unhappy and depressed, mainly because she had consigned herself to doing the biddings of others all of her life. She had not gone to school, not followed her dreams, been forced into a marriage, been bullied and manipulated by her mother and husband. Freya was not just saddened by the fate of her sister, she was angered. It was time to stop talking about doing something and actually do it. It was time to go east. She decided to start out by traveling to Beirut, where she arranged to continue her studies of Arabic from local missionaries and, most importantly, the local people. She knew that if she was to thrive in the East, she would have to be able to talk to people as one of them. Stark arranged to have her mother move to Oslo, near their friends, the Youngs, where she would help run a small weaving factory for an American investor. 
This worked out wonderfully, as Flora would be looked after by the youngs, and she would be reinvigorated by having something to focus on. Freya's flower farm would be rented out, and it would give her a small but steady source of income. Also, she had done some investing herself, and that had paid off, leaving her with money for her upcoming adventure. Stark was all set to head to Beirut when word arrived from Canada. Her father had had a stroke. She considered heading to Canada, but before departing, she received a letter from her father, saying he was recovering. He urged her to go on her adventure. Crisis averted. And so, in December of 1927, Freya Stark set out for the Middle East. She arrived in Beirut and took a room at a monastery in Brumana, just outside the city. People thought she was an oddity. Nearly everyone asked why she wasn't married, and they thought her travels to be a bit of a quaint lark. But she generally won people over by being polite and asking smart questions, although there were some people who suspected she was an English spy. After a time in Beirut, she would move on to Damascus and stay with a local family. Damascus had been a great and prosperous city, the fourth holiest in Islam, but it was now shabby and depressed. A recent revolt had left parts of the city bombed out. Some political notes here. This region, Syria, had been ceded by the now-defunct Ottoman Empire to the French, who were supposed to administer the area until the local people could effectively govern themselves. This was through the UN mandate. Well, the French were not really interested in that sort of a thing. They paid lip service to the mandate, but in reality, this was about them getting a colony to rule. This led to the Great Syrian Revolt. 4,000 people would be killed, half of them the Druze, a group from the region of Jabal al-Druze. As a result of the rebellion, which had just only been put down, the local population hated the French, and frankly, the French hated the local people. They saw them as barbarians and felt they should be happy to have French culture brought to them. And the last thing these soldiers wanted was to be fighting people in a miserably hot desert. Stark fought off a nasty bout of dysentery in March of 1927 and gradually expanded her excursions around the city. Going out mostly alone, she found that she was safe as Islamic tradition treated women such as her with respect. Also, her Arabic improved with each encounter with the locals. In Damascus, Stark would see it all and gain her sea legs as a traveler. She saw the Bedouins, the old citadels, the mosques, the churches. She saw the poverty and desperation of the people. As Stark was English and a woman, she was more accepted by the local people who did not see her as a threat. By the way, Freya always had with her her camera, and she would go on to become a prolific and celebrated photographer. One highlight of her time in Damascus was when she met members of the El Azim tribe, one of Syria's great feudal families. This was a rich and proud tribe, and what followed was right out of a story. They invited Stark to join them for a time and took her to the edge of the desert where she saw the Bedouin tents and flocks of sheep, plus the herds of camels, hundreds of them. She found them magnificent and was entranced by the experience, saying, quote, I left it with that somehow, sometime, I must see more of these great spaces. End quote. It is now that I want to introduce a new character into our story, and that is Venetia Budakam, who was approximately Freya's age. Her family was very wealthy and owned a villa near Stark's home, as well as a massive estate in Wales. The two had become great companions. They loved to ride and hike and travel. When they weren't together, they wrote countless letters to each other. Venetia was traveling from India to Europe and had agreed to stop in Syria to visit. The two women then decided they wanted to go on a bit of an adventure. But what to do? That takes us back to the Druze. Remember them? The Druze were a secretive and fiercely independent group who lived in a closed community. They were a heretical branch of a heretical Islamic offshoot, the Ismailis. 
These melees had been powerful in the Middle East until 1021, when they were broken up and forced to scatter into smaller groups. One of these groups was led into Syria by Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Durazi, and his people would be known as the Druze. The Druze, as I said earlier, were a closed community who had little actions with others. Intermarriage with other groups was discouraged. Their rites were obscure, and they had no public places of worship. And they didn't do the five daily prayers, which are so often associated with Islam. Because of all of this, little was known about the Druze or the area they lived in. The Great Syrian Revolt I referred to earlier started in the Druze lands, Jabal al-Druze, which means Mountain of the Druze. The French had come into the area with mandates and rules and proclamations, and war had broken out. The result had been bitter and ugly. All of this, Freya thought, would make quite a good story, and so she set her sights on going to Jabal al-Druze. By the way, another reason she was intrigued by the Druze was that Salami, a man who had helped teach her Arabic and Brumana, had a family friend who had been a servant in the camp of a Druze chieftain. He provided Stark with a letter of introduction to the chief. Now, this all seemed like a dandy idea, except for a couple of important things. First, the Druze did not like outsiders. And second, the French had placed Jabal al-Druze under martial law and banned all travel into it. However, that was not going to deter Freya Stark, despite everyone telling her that her plans were crazy. They said it was nuts to go alone into the lands of these fanatics. If the French didn't stop them, the Druze would probably kill them. I think the most amazing thing is that Stark got her friend, Venetia Budakam, to agree to the idea. Venetia was from a wealthy and influential family. Thankfully, she seems to have gone along merrily on whatever adventures Freya cooked up. Anyhow, Freya did the most important thing in organizing her little expedition. She hired a Druze guide, a man named Najim. By doing this, he would be able to guide them through the social and cultural barriers that lay ahead, plus he knew where to go. And so the two women and their guide departed from Damascus in May of 1927. They rode donkeys and carried water, food, and provisions. The three travelers headed south through various small villages and outposts. Stark noted that the fields were bone dry due to an extended drought. Occasionally they would pass by ruins and she pondered who built them. Romans, Crusaders, Phoenicians, who? It was thrilling to see history all around her. Najim moved the party quickly, stopping at waterholes only as long as needed. He feared bandits or Bedouin raiders. He said that a few years earlier, some travelers he had been guiding had been murdered along this route. The three saw a handful of other travelers and the occasional vehicle, including armored cars with French soldiers. However, no one paid much attention to them, and they quickly moved on. They traveled along the Lajat, a volcanic rock shelf, with villages carved right into the rocks. The further and further they went, the fewer and fewer people they encountered. Najim knew good places to stop, homes with families that would take them in and provide shelter and food for the night. Here, Stark learned how important taking in strangers was, especially women, in much of Islamic culture. Once you were taken in, you were under the protection of the household. This was taken very seriously. Also, this practice was common amongst people of all stations in life. Even the poorest people would bend over backwards to shelter and feed our explorer. The local people loved to talk to Freya. The Druze men, Stark said, looked like pirates with long hair and knives tucked into their waists. Some were wearing Turkish military uniforms left over from the war. Many of these people had never met a Westerner, especially not a woman. And most foreigners didn't speak Arabic. Communication, we shall see, was important to Freya's success. She was able to actually connect directly with the people she encountered. That's crucial. At night, the women slept by the fire in a home, or if they had one, a bean garden. 
The fleas didn't like the region's beans, and thus they stayed clear. Venetia especially hated the fleas. The party moved forward and up into the mountains. To avoid French outposts, they followed a rough mule trail into the foothills. They went up and up thousands of feet and eventually reached a ridge in the village of Shabbat. Entering the village, Stark passed through an old Roman gate. This was the start of Drew's territory. Now, the first thing that Najim did was to find his charges a place to stay, just like any knight. And just as Freya and her companions were settling in, visitors arrived. It was the French police. Now, Stark's expedition may have ended right then and there, but the fun was really just starting. The French were, as you can imagine, absolutely baffled by these two English women. What were they doing here? Were they spies? They were incredulous that the two had ridden on donkeys from Damascus. I mean, it was only 60 miles, but that was an entire world away from Jabal al-Druz, which is an elevated volcanic region rising up nearly 6,000 feet in height, or 1,800 meters. Stark and her friend were promptly hauled to the police station for interrogation. It was here that Freya and Venetia concocted a quick cover story. So what were they doing here, asked the police. It was Stark who replied, as she spoke French fluently. She told the police that they were out sightseeing. The trip had been no more than a lark. She then praised the safe roads and cities, telling the French commander that if more people knew how easy it was to travel around the region, they would get more tourists. The women giggled and flirted with the police officers. The French did not know what to think of it all. Tourists? What? No one ever came to this region for fun. Was it possible they were telling the truth? Well, the French were so confused, they had to send a message off to their superiors to get guidance. They then gave the two women a bed for the night. Venetia and Freya thoroughly enjoyed having the French policemen cater to their every need. But deep down, Stark was afraid that they would be put in a car and driven back to Damascus, or maybe plopped in a prison cell for a bit, just to see what happened after a few days of discomfort. In the end, the women spent two days as the guests of the French police, and treated it like a fun little trip in the countryside, keeping up their act as a couple of women out on a sightseeing tour. The first day, they asked the police commander if they could accompany him on his tour of the area, and they asked could they go on horses? He obliged, bringing along six guards. They were shown the new roads, new schools, and new construction. Freya quickly realized how intensely the Druze hated the French, and she predicted that forcing on them French ideas of culture was counterproductive. Most of all, she disliked how the French treated these people, who they were supposed to be helping. Of it, she said, quote, They talk of them, and to them, as if they were scarce to be considered as human beings. End quote. She thought the French occupation was all going to end badly, saying, quote, If the Druzes ever get a chance, they will not leave a man alive in the whole district. End quote. By the way, Stark showed the French commander the letter she had for the Druze chieftain, and she asked if there were other Druze leaders she could meet. Rather cheeky of her. In the end, Stark's gambit paid off. The French were flummoxed by these two giggling English women and decided they were no threat. On day three, they were released. They were free to travel anywhere. And there was even a letter of introduction to Sheikh Ahmed, the high priest of the Druze. The French offered Stark a car and driver to tour the region, but she knew that that was a bad idea. She didn't want to be associated in any way with the hated French. And so the three travelers headed into the realm of the Druze on their donkeys, to be honest, it's not as if she was going to uncover anything great in this area. There were no lost cities or ancient treasures to be found. They did meet with Sheikh Ahmed, the Druze religious leader. He was happy to speak with Freya once he found out that she wasn't French. The man wanted to know about India once he found out that Venetia had come from there. He asked about Buddhism and the people of Tibet. He was disappointed that Venetia knew little about either subject. But then there was something else that emerged from the discussion. 
The Sheikh talked about a strange cult that had terrorized the East during the 11th and 12th centuries. The Crusaders called them assassins. Stark was intrigued by this and filed it away. The company traveled around the area, meeting and interacting with the locals. Again, having a Druze guide had been critical to this, as well as Stark's ability to speak Arabic. The Druze, by the way, were as interested in the English women as they were in them. They spoke openly with Stark. They told stories of the recent rebellion and took them to a place where Druze warriors had defeated a force of French soldiers. Also, they loved the story of how Freya had confused the French and they had released her. At the village of Resas, Freya was introduced to Sheikh Mutib al-Atrash, who had only recently returned to the area from exile. Stark gave the man the letter that Salomai had written for her. The Sheikh was polite to the women and spoke openly of his distrust of foreigners, especially the French, who delivered nothing but lies. The English were better, he said, but not by much. He doubted anything good would come from the United Nations' efforts. He simply wanted freedom for his people. With the letter delivered, Freya and Venetia decided it was time to head back to Damascus. Stark had discovered many things during her first excursion into the deserts of the Middle East, and the simplest one was that travel did not have to be difficult. Bring along a good guide and people to handle the donkeys, and one could go safely and steadily through the rugged deserts and mountains of the region. A traveler didn't need soldiers and wagons and bearers. The company emerged from the Druze lands and then hired a car to take them to Palestine. Freya and Venetia would visit Roman ruins, Jerusalem and Cairo, where they climbed the steps of the Pyramids of Giza. And with that, the trip was over and the two women parted ways. Stark headed back to Italy at the end of May, but then moved on to London. There she did two things. First, she wrote her first article about Syria. In it, she described her journeys and she railed against the policies of the French, saying the United Nations' efforts in the Middle East were doomed to fail. The article was immediately accepted by Cornhill Magazine, a respected monthly literary journal. She signed the article under the pseudonym of Thorea. She didn't want to use her own name as she intended to go back to Syria and the last thing she wanted was to signal to the French who she was. Thorea, by the way, is a star in the constellation Pleiades. It means she who illuminates the world. The article was a great success, and Freya Stark, who was 35 years old, had a future as a writer. She could actually make money and be free of the constraints of her mother and society. And that takes us to the second thing on Stark's agenda, what to do next. As she considered it, she kept coming back to the story told to her by the Druze holy man, that of the assassins. The more she investigated them, the more she was intrigued. The Order of the Assassins had existed between 1090 and 1285, almost 200 years. They lived in the mountains of Persia and the Levant in the Middle East. They grew to control a large swath of land and had six major fortresses from which they ran operations. The Order is famous because they used assassination as a tool, and during their existence, hundreds of political figures were killed by the mysterious sect. Edward I, King of England, was nearly killed by an assassin during the Crusades. But the assassins were threats to anyone who threatened their power and influence, not just the Christians. Their clandestine operations inspired dread. The Order of the Assassins, however, would be destroyed in 1285 by the invading Mongols. Some of their fortresses were destroyed, others occupied. The location of these fortresses were known, except for one. To reach it, it was said that a person had to go through the Valley of the Assassins, wherever that was. And with that, Freya Stark had her next assignment. She was going to return to the Middle East, find the Valley of the Assassins, and discover the lost city of the secretive and long-dead sect. But that story will be for next time. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. 
Please join us for our next episode when we go looking for the Valley of the Assassins with Freya Stark. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. If you like this series, I suggest you check out Ancient History Fangirl and the Queen's Podcast.